Greetings to everyone listening. This is the Greek Speak podcast. I'm the Archon, and this is episode four of my talks with the Greek on a range of subjects about the situation that mankind finds itself in on a wholesale level. It's been some weeks since the last stream, and these gaps are quite regrettable, but I just have to make the best of a cumbersome schedule. For this episode, as usual, feel free to use the Greek Speak chat room if you have any questions or input during the stream. The status of Greek Speak's political, religious, and commercial affiliations has not changed, because there aren't any, and I run this project on my own. So, please enjoy the rest of the show, and thanks again for listening. Hi, Greek. Hello there. Greetings. So, we are back. How's life treating you? Uh, the way life's supposed to treat you, I guess. Well, I guess we all have different expectations for that sort of thing. That's that's right. Maybe we'll get into a little bit, a little bit of that today. Yeah, let's see where things take us. Well, the theme that I've prepared for this week is that of education, which is meant to be a sort of continuation from last episode's focus on communication. Um, I think a lot has been said in the 20th century about the nature of things like formal education, whether it's establishment institutions that advocate for it or those who have been sort of disillusioned by it and disparage it, usually in their books. So it would be useful, I think, if we could break down those two sides to examine what lies at the root of that issue, um, the school system, but also general ideas of edifying yourself and others. Um, so to that end, we're going to look at three categories, with the first being education, and the others being learning and teaching. So um, let's start by looking at the idea of formal education as organized machinery with its own mandates, which is what it seems to be today. Um, my understanding is that a particular kind of state-sanctioned, almost factory model education arose in the 18th century. Most people attribute it to Prussia, the Prussian school system, and that later spread throughout the world, and that's what most of the anti-schooling insurgents point to as the creation of the modern system. What do you know about that development, Greek? Well, I can only say the just try to discern what anyone else can discern based on the history that's available on it. Uh, I'd say that it's much more nefarious uh, uh, than most people think, uh, because you control what people know or think about, and you control you know the people. Uh, I think the British had a, a, a big uh, hand in it, not just the Prussians, uh, probably post-Prussian influence. But it, the influence went even prior to that, which was no education. Um, and let me just preface something, that if you provided a proper, yes, there is such a thing as a proper education to society at large today, even the past 50 years, it would be rejected because it wouldn't be recognized as such. So that's a, a simple way of saying that it's everything is just too far gone, right? So if anyone is listening to this, uh, you're not going to hear, hopefully, what you think you want to hear. Um, it's, we're going to pretty much try to be as objective as possible. But just like uh, any objectivity can lead to a happy ending or not such a happy ending, the current education system, formal, me mechanized, industrial, like you mentioned, uh, cannot be fixed. It has to be completely discarded and started from the from from scratch, and very little of it tra will transfer over to a proper education system. So this is not a uh, a recitation or a discussion or a sonic event on how things can be made better. 
because they can't. Uh, sorry, sorry to be the 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 bearer of such good news, <laughs> right? Because bad news would be the uh, the false uh, hope in trying to make it better. So I guess we'll we'll be we'll sound critical and we'll, we'll be as objective as much uh, as much as possible. Sure thing. Um, we will get into sort of the more specifics of what makes these the system flawed. But just to stick with the, the historicity of it, because I mean, even, you know, sometimes people harp a bit too much on the, the Prussian thing as if there wasn't anything before the 18th century. I know that prior to that point, you already had a sort of colonial education system. For example, the monitorial system where the Spanish and the British colonies in the 17th century would have hundreds of kids in a hall and then you have one master who teaches all of them and then, you know, the older kids will supervise the younger kids and it's sort of, it was described as a factory model even back then. So there seems to have been a ramp up at some point. I'm not really sure where that point was, but we're going to educate these people like animals and, you know, get the results thereof. Uh, maybe, maybe narrowly viewed uh, in such a way. And the reason I say that is because you cannot discount the type of society or the goals of the society or the ideology of a society uh, when looking at the education system. Give an example, ancient Assyria or ancient Sparta, uh, what's known as Greece, uh, were warfaring people. Uh, their, their industry was war. When they wanted or needed something, they simply went and conquered someone who had it. The type of education that they received there was to create fighters and strategists and tacticians and just soldiers, right? All the way from frontline cannon fodder to lieutenants and, and others that could lead groups of people. And then you have um, uh, an education system that must reflect that, right? Uh, then you have an agricultural system. And if you have an agricultural system, uh, the education must be around that agriculture, because if you have an agricultural system and you uh, base the education on, let's say, uh, what might be contra uh, contradicting like uh, industry or uh, various forms of uh, engineering that are not pertaining to agriculture or philosophy or law or medicine, the uh, you would force uh, that population uh, to use that form of education outside of the agricultural community, you see, if you the same with if you you know you can pick any type of society, seafaring society, nomadic society, you know what whatever the society bases its industry, and I use that term not in the way that people consider industry to be in the modern industrial uh, sense, but in the way that they um, provide for themselves, it must be in accordance for that. That's why, for example, fast forward to the modern system, <clears throat> you don't need as many people as uh, were needed at one point to do uh, what, let's say, is necessary. So uh, why, why would you educate them? Right. And the other thing is uh, uh, when you understand legal or lawful status of a slave, slaves were not educated uh, in a general sense. They, they just received education in pertaining to whatever tasks they were, uh, uh, I guess, purchased or held in slavery to do. And uh, let's just uh, throw in the word education means what people think it means, but it also means the training of animals. So uh, it, it is interchangeable. So, And you mean from an etymological point, it means the training yeah. of animals? Right, right. And it was used mostly... Uh, for the training of animals in past. 
you know, because the wor words like Lieber and words like uh, literacy and, you know, Lieber meaning book and uh, uh, literacy uh, were, were more pertaining to the labeling or uh, a well-read. Uh, people didn't say they were educated, right? They're, you were like a man of the cloth. They had other sayings about that, right? So it, it's sort of a mo more of a modern term to say someone is educated. They, they used, uh, you know, learned in the law, learned in the in the agriculture, learned in shipbuilding. You were learned in something, not educated, was more the common uh, terminology. I see. I don't want to depart from the, the history aspect too quickly because I know that there's a bit more that can be said about that. What can be said about the efficacy of other school systems throughout, let's say, the 17th to 19th centuries? Because you've mentioned the Victorian grammar schools as something that conveyed more productive instruction than what we see today. So can you touch on that and perhaps other variants that you know of? Sure. The The, the simple variant was uh, the it was the responsibility of the family structure or, or the uh, the vicinity of the people. In other words, basically schools were a neighborhood thing or a tribal thing. And you had the one room schoolhouse uh, more into the upper crusty, upper echelon of society. You had more of the, the, the well endowed, better funded uh, types, you know, uh, the, the, the boarding uh, involved and, and uh, more what's called as a academy today. Um, I, I've always uh, spoke about the um, what's called the Victorian grammar school system, N not to tout as Victorianism in a positive light in any way, but what is positive about that education was typically between the ages of seven and 14 of age, uh, years of age. And you uh, uh, it, it was it was not as an indoctr indoctrination program. Uh, it was more of a providing the student with with the tools of literacy program. And also it was a, a condensed, limited. Uh, in other words, it didn't take much of your life uh, as modern systems take roughly anywhere from 12 to 16 years. And it was far more effective. Are there any other systems that you would put on par with that, the Victorian grammar schools? Not really, uh, because, the, again, it, it was uh, if you go prior in history, other than the, what's known as ac academy, right? You know, you, anyone could, it's a broad term, but, you know, even like Soc the Socratic academies, right? Pythagorean academies from ancient Greece. Um, other than that, it was a tribal and familial task. It was a, it was not centralized or, or as, as people consider it, education today. It was uh, done locally and in a, in a microcosmic way. Again, depending on the tribe or, or the, uh, let's say, the neighborhood or society in a micro way. Uh, you, you had, uh, you can even see the concept of the one-room schoolhouse. An agricultural concept uh, um, was uh, the predominant value in an agricultural society and an industrial <clears throat> concepts were predominant in an industrial society uh, if you go far back. And yes, there were industrial societies. If you look at the many of the major cities of the world that go back uh, prior to the 18th century, they had industry. People seem to think that uh, modern industry, what's called mass production or artisanship or that kind of stuff uh, uh, with machines uh, making products, 
is a recent phenomenon. It's not. Just like the light bulb was around for hundreds of years, it just wasn't uh, durable. Electricity has been around um, for hundreds of years as well. It just was not as uh, available to the masses as it, is, as it is today. So you did have industrial cities back in ancient times as well, and their education would be very different from, again, agricultural or seafaring or a warring type of society or tribe or what have you. Is there anything that can be used to determine what system of organized schooling was the most effective in history? Because I'm sure that even though in modern times we might point to the Victorian grammar schools, even if you go back to ancient times, there must have been something. You mentioned the academies of certain philosophers that have been known to sort of make a name for themselves in the world of being learned. Well, you can make the a safe presumption to say that uh, if, if knowledge is power, which I don't think it is, I think the action is the power aspect, but when knowledge was held uh, throughout society, it was always used against the masses. Oh, well, I wouldn't say directly used against them, but it was uh, sequestered and contained by very few. And this goes back through all of known history. So would we say that um, th those academies, let's say, or those forms or, of education or schools were the best? It, it raises a moral question either way. The best school is the best school for if it, it, for an, for the each pertaining economy, let's say. And the word economy means the laws of the house. It's a Greek word, uh, nomos meaning law, and echo meaning house, or ekos. So uh, it's really difficult to say. You would have to be more specific. You know, for an agricultural society, which would be the best school? And again, would it be central? And it would not, right? Because you'd have different types of agricultural practices, even based on which region you're you're doing the agriculture in the same with industry um, I wouldn't say that there is a, a good uh, uh, f let's say formal institution small or large ever uh, that has um, that has been brought forward to this modern day at all um, so then that poses the question you know how are people educated in in a good sense or what is the highest form of education this of course will lead to I think so as far as mass education goes, when I look at all of the schooling reforms in the 18th to 20th centuries, they all use the same sort of hackneyed rhetoric about personalizing education, quote unquote, freeing up students to be more creative and empowering teachers. And yet they all seem to fail at their stated goals because they get replaced by something else. And that leads me to wonder whether it's possible to mass produce education. And you've commented on that. I'm wondering if it's more the case that each person is ultimately responsible for his own education and society only provides the forms or the tools for that, ideally. Uh, yes and no. Ultimately, uh, the self-responsibility aspect would raise the question, is a five, six, or seven, or eight-year-old responsible for themselves, and, and how responsible should they be or can they be? It is a responsibility of, of the... Uh, those rearing those children uh but ultimately um uh it, it is a response when you be when you become older and you're you're able to manifest desire uh responsibly uh yes it is from that aspect but from the formative years of education it's the responsibility of uh those that are, have guardianship over the uh the young people and that's one of the reasons why 
it's so easy to manipulate a society by uh, rearing the children into a, a you know certain behavior or certain mindset or ideology uh, because they they are not responsible um, and can't be responsible. Yeah, well, with the children child aspect, I would understand it. I guess I was more referring to the idea of an adult who takes responsibility for himself because to a certain extent we're all shouldering a certain amount of folly that's been foisted upon us as children and then you have to unburden yourself from that as you get older and some people succeed and some people don't yeah i think we've discussed before that your average human uh from a, on a planetary scale operates um mentally uh within the age range of nine to twelve years old so again i think that's going to lead some some very uh deep questions on uh, what happens when you get older. You just get older, but the mindset is still very immature. Uh, and on, from the majority aspect, there's always a uh, very small minority of humans or Earth inhabitants that uh, tend to feel that it's an ongoing process for, the, for all of their lives. And that's the other extreme, you know, to keep learning. And uh, then, of course, there's cosmic censorship, the ideology of the society that's put upon the individuals, you know, the people, and, um, uh, the, you know, personal choices, of course. Hmm. I would like to know what is at the heart of how ineffective today's form formal education is. Because you can point to many elements from the incompetence on the part of teachers to substandard curriculums, or you could look at the influence of charities and foundations with anonymous donor groups that dictate the direction of the school. But out of those kinds of things, what do you think is the most guilty party for what makes things look the way that they look today? There's status, basically, and, and there's a lot of people harping on this, and I'm not. I'm not a constitutionalist or uh, a freedom fighter or into liberty or anything like that that people tote about. But if you have a birth certificate, you're legally a slave, your property. So if we go back and look at the general aspects of what type of education slaves received, you can answer that question on yourself. Uh, you know, anyone can answer that on their own, because even just the urban myth that slaves are not to be educated is still true. So you have a, a slave planet, essentially, right? Except for maybe a few Pashtun tribesmen, maybe some people in Somalia or the Congo, uh, then you have to address, you know, as if you just visited this planet, and you have 7 billion people plus, you know, in the status of slave, illegally, uh, not necessarily lawfully, but legally for sure, uh, how do you handle the education system or criticize it? And if, you know, then it leads back to saying, well, uh, just to cut to the chase, the modern system is strictly about control, you know, how to control the population. Um, and you cannot control a population unless they have a sense of literacy, um, where, for example, the archaic aspect of a slave was someone working out in a field or, or some workshop with an overseer uh, dictating to them. Uh, that is not the case. I mean, you do have policing and other things like that, but that is not the case in the, the slave planet known as Earth. So um, they have to know, have some literacy to access the control mechanisms. An example would be uh, they have to be literate enough to be able to discern the numbers and letters on a television remote control. 
right? Because the most important aspect for getting an education or, or, or understanding uh, a typical earth inhabitant, or the, at least in the industrialized world, they're going to get 99.99999% of what they think is true, what they should do or what they shouldn't do from, yes, you guessed it, the television. That's by design. And how are they going to get that if they can't operate, let's say, a remote control or a television, which still requires a, a very minimal amount of literacy? That's interesting. I never really thought about that aspect of things, that, in fact, you get educated so that you can become more of a slave. Well, because there is no direct overseer. You have indirect oversight. So the people have to be trained to go in a 1984 kind of way, you know, Winston, wake up in the morning, you know, you have to face the screen and all that, you know, the, the, the Orwellian book. Um, by the way, a lot of these, uh, like Huxley and Orwell and all these guys that wrote all these modern dystopic uh, uh, novels, they were done under orders to write that, right, to disclose uh, a, a very strong possibility. But nonetheless, uh, there is a certain amount of literacy that's required to maintain uh, – uh, whatever design, social design uh, you want to put in place, you know, because, uh, uh, you know, there are uh, uh, there are some people that are completely illiterate. In other words, if you'd handed them a television remote control, they couldn't discern the numbers or the letters on there. So how are they going to watch uh, the propaganda or how are they going to know what they should do and, and not do? Right. So you need to have some level of access to communication again. Uh, uh, it can be done graphically, uh, you know, um, but it's gotten to the point where even certain graphic symbols are not so, um, let's say, illicit that you still have to have some literacy to comprehend them. So I would say that it's just basically a system of control. Now, the the controllers from a, I think this is more of a secular sonic event, right? We don't want to get into the spiritual side of it because that's just a, an avalanche of information that has to be covered before we even discuss the spiritual side of things. But from a secular point of view, you have to understand um, that uh, everything is done in secret when it's uh, – in other words, true power is, is held in secret. Uh, even from an overt standpoint, no one wants a power plant in the middle of their neighborhood. It's always put outside of their neighborhood, right? So the powers that are running from a secular point of view, human society are in secret and outside of their view. Um, th th their desires are uh, for the population is what you see, in other words, in the education system. So when you look at the formal education system, and, and, and when I say formal education system, I'm really speaking more about university level uh, uh, as being rubbish as well, because you can't have elementary and middle and high school being rubbish, and then all of a sudden a university education is good, right? So um, – and, and the true culprits uh, or the real dummies uh, or the ignorant or, or the professors and the teachers, right? So uh, the students, of course, will always admit, uh, I, you know, uh, I think it's only a few days after they learn something, they forget it because they're just glad they got out of that place. So essentially the desire of the secular power control is, uh, even though they operate in secret, is not a secret because you can just – 
uh, witness it by looking at uh, the education system. That is the desire they have for their property. Mm. Just uh, before we move on to the next thing, what do you mean by Orwell and Huxley did that under orders? I haven't seen that recorded anywhere. Oh, yeah, it's pretty obvious when you when you understand uh, there were contemporaries and to a certain degree. And when it came out, um, the new world, you know, uh, the, the concept of formulating a new world order is not something that happens overnight. Right. And uh, the you, the mid century, mid 20th century was a very, very key turning point into form forming, you know, the next hundred years, not uh not even an incremental fashion, but in a very gradual fashion. And of course, uh, it was done under orders. And of course, I wasn't there, and I didn't, I never saw, or witnessed the orders. But uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I can, I can take a hint. <laughs> okay. Can you give some evidence too? <laughs> oh yeah, clearly. Uh, you can see that it, it wasn't necessarily as prophetic as people think. It was basically people having, uh, again, in secret discussions that basically get around certain circles. And it, it, when there are certain people that have talents uh, in the media, which can be uh, writing as a medium of communication, art is another medium of communication, the visual, audio arts, music, um, all that, and they are influenced. Uh, there, there is there is literally armies of people behind the scenes influencing what you see as media, education, the visual arts, the audio arts. You know, um, in, it, there has been enough information, even a lot of blame is or finger pointing is on the Tavistock Institute. But that is a very small aspect of it, it is even though it's influential for every thing that you hear in public, you know, from the conspiratorial secrets, that's the tip of the iceberg, right? How many times have you heard up until even now, but starting in the 60s, uh, even groups like the Beatles and all that were influenced uh, to put out certain, you know, social memes that will change the mindset and ideology of the society. Um, it's very, very simple. But I would... Uh, uh, you know, here's the thing. There is no research on that. There's a lot of research on, for example, how uh, Crowley influenced, very, you know, and Jack Parsons and all these other things uh, in the Scientology. There's a trio there, an unholy alliance, and how things were influenced by these people. But the, uh, there's an influence that is underlined that's been going on since time in memorial. Um, but I would suggest very strongly, and then of course it's a presumption. I said, of course, it was, they were ordered to do that. But yes, it's it's quite obvious once you understand how things work. Those were commissioned works. Okay, I mean, I will dig into it a bit more and perhaps bring that that subject up again. But no, I know about the the music aspect in any case, and the film aspect of that sort of thing. Um, but to get back to education, just so that we can wrap up this particular segment. Um, I, I think it's interesting that the institutional wisdom tells us that children need school because they learn there and are best prepared for the world there, but that institutional wisdom is itself the product of the schools and people who graduated from the schools that shaped the world. So how does a student who sees the folly in the school system escape from that or mitigate the effects of that if he no longer wants to be a part of it? Well, the aspect that you mentioned that uh, they'll do better in society is absolutely true. 
if if the power structure uh, wants uh, a very easily controlled, uh, let's say from an individual basis, they want the individuals to be easily controlled and manipulated. You know, I call them the mushroom people. You keep them in the dark and feed them bovine excrement. Uh, yes, you will do well in society. And speaking for, from firsthand knowledge, being around people that are of the upper echelon of society, judicial, medical, political, engineering community, um, uh, they are uh, uh, pretty dumb. Uh, not not uh, unsavvy um, or not necessarily successful in business. I didn't say that, but they're not smart, right? They basically followed along and played with the system when they get into a um, – they find themselves not not by chance – but by uh, usually uh, positioning themselves, networking, and just hard work to be very wealthy. But they're not—they're not smart or intelligent in, in in a general sense that you would expect. You know, they're not well learned uh, at all. You see, but yes, you you will do better if you believe all. Uh, you know, if you if if the power structure demands that the planet is inhabited by the mushroom people, again kept you know kept in the dark and fed excrement yes you will do best in that society with their propaganda yeah sure but if you are say a 15 16 year old and you 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 reach a point where you're like this is garbage i'm learning nothing i want out but obviously you live in you know first world country where this sort of thing is mandated by law you go to school you know how are you going to ex extract yourself from the excrement even though you're in in and of it you don't. You might be crossing the street in a month and get hit by a bus and killed instantly, or you might live a long and fruitless life into your 70s and 80s. You don't. That's just part of the existence of being human in this age or many ages. Uh, you know, it's not a good existence. Sorry to break the news to you if you don't know that. So, again, it goes back to the basic credo that I've always been saying, food, clothing, shelter. And then you're going to have to wonder uh, until you discover uh, what level of quality of those things you'd like. And then you're going to have to figure out how much compromise um, you're going to have to make, uh, you know, to accept what the dictates are and follow through. Hmm. It seems to be a condition in which you're in quite a stranglehold, whereas... The, the point should be to, to uh, extract yourself from that stranglehold, not, you know, resign yourself to it. I wouldn't say it's a stranglehold. I just say it's an unfortunate situation. So since you're born in a, in a society or an age that is unfortunate, you might want to seek fortune. And, and fortune might be things that are beneficial to your being and all the way to the material fortunes that people, you know, are told they should have. If you think that uh, er you're fortunate to be alive on Earth in any of these ages, you're an idiot. It's a very unfortunate condition to be here. Uh, I think the passion evoked by the arts and uh, romanticism and even, yes, the education system, the, that things are, are good or even can be great is idiotic. Uh, and it's basically a, a drug that fits between the ears very well for most people. Just to wrap up on the education segment, um, I'd like to expand on the topic of formal education to look at perhaps what could be the inverse of that, which you could loosely refer to as informal education, I guess. But the intuitive idea behind that term is that there exists a methodology of learning that is not based on predetermined pipelines of instruction or manufactured culture of compliance. And that method of learning 
takes its momentum in the curiosity and the direct experience of a person. Can you contrast those two approaches and maybe explain why they so rarely intersect? That is, learning in school versus learning by direct observation. Well, there's direct observation and there's also an understanding the real history of something and going toggling back and forth between the creative direct ob observation and sense of discovery and, and uh, you know, learning versus the centralized system. Um, if you look at trying to find out where things started or the history of something, uh, you're on your own. Because if you go to the centralized system, they're going to feed you basically lies, right? Um, and if you want to, let's say, find the history on something on your own, you're going to be intertwining with the, you know, the lies that the centralized system puts out. But you're also going to find um, a little bit more leading towards the truth, right? And instead of wholeheartedly accepting what the mainstream says. So the other aspect is if you want to have a population that's easily controlled just like you know horses that are bridled pulling a wagon or something you, the, you, they can't have their own will and their own desires right so i think ultimately the there's going to be a crossroads and a conflict between who wants to learn by direct observation understanding the history of things and of course morality as well uh, when they try to compare it to what's taught by the uh, centralized public system, which is immoral and amoral. Uh, and it's very easy to say that. That's not an opinion. That's the truth. And the example of that would be uh, if you uh, – any any university in the world, uh, high or low, meaning you know well-esteemed or not so well-esteemed, you can go look at their law degree programs, Okay. Look at their curriculum. Um, you could find them on the stupid rectangle. None of them teach any law. The most you will get is some law, legal theory. Most of it is basically contracts, commerce, how to set up a legal clinic, right, and all that. So essentially you have no law anymore. You don't have anyone learned in the law uh, with the exception of those that have uh, taken upon themselves to do it on their own. And of course, you can't practice or be in a formal insti legal institution in that way. So again, that's where I said you're finding yourself in a very misfortunate and unfortunate place. And the same goes with medicine. Other than some basic anatomy, there are no universe, university, universities that teach how the human body works or anybody. Right. And I just dare anyone to look at the curriculum of these universities. So if someone wants to learn about healing and how the human body works, you have to do it on your own. And you will, of course, be at odds with the centralized system and you won't be able to practice it or be prominent in society with it without major conflict. And again, you will find yourself in a misfortunate and unfortunate condition. It goes on with any subject. I mean, I'm trying to think of some example in history where you had somebody that did things through their own direct observation, and they were able to have success in, in an industrial sense, but... On the surface, it seems like you... Uh, uh, free will, creativity, and un, unabound, you know, learning and uh, inspiration and all that is rewarded, and it's not. That's done publicly, and I think we've mentioned before, this, the, the quote-unquote system that is set up in secret will always say in public... In most societies, modern societies, you're free, you have liberty, do what you want. But in private, 
once uh, any agency or authoritative uh, institution or figure gets the individual in private and brings up those those virtues that are bestowed to the public, they say, no, you don't have any of that. You have to be like everyone else. You see, so it's a very insidious system. Um, and, and of course, you have the, the uh, system uh, uh, variants, like in Asia, for example, you have a, a different, you know, like the, if you look at China, it's a very different mindset and ideology. Uh, and then you, again, can contrast the Eastern versus the Western, right? And then you have, um, you know, within those, you know, East versus West, North and South, you know, uh, variants. But uh, I can tell you that um, wholesale, being a, on a slave planet, when you start hearing this society says you're free and you have more liberty and all that, those are where the biggest liars are, right? They just uh, have a, a better deception for you. I mean, at some point we're gonna we'll do an episode on entertainment and things of that nature too, and arts to actually look at what some of those lies um, manifest themselves as. But let's now move on to the concept of learning, which I think is less about what you do in school and more about how you edify yourself through self-development. I find it interesting how much the educational system tries to develop students through the provision of information rather than the provision of insight or understanding, because these schools almost make it a point of honor to have big libraries and volumes of textbooks about all kinds of stuff and trivia, yet they gloss over that all that information is pointless unless the students are able to arrive at accurate insights about reality. So then it's no wonder that the schools have free reign to teach erroneous science or fake history because there's not really any requirement for the students to actually grasp at the heart of those subjects. What would you say is the key for a person to arrive at insight out of the information that they encounter such that they can perceive the folly of the things that are taught in school or in other places? All right. Simply put, if it's if it's put out for the masses, it's it's going to be either an outright lie completely or 90 percent, if not best at best, 50 percent false. So you're going to have to sift uh, through the old uh, sifting through poop to get edible corn. Um, I, I think your question sort of in a roundabout way answers itself. But um, you, you're not. Um, it's about control, not about knowledge, you see. Uh, so ultimately, even someone seeking knowledge, let's just, we haven't brought up that word yet uh, regarding education. But if you're seeking knowledge and you start gaining knowledge, real knowledge, not the, the, uh, the false aspect of what's put out uh, by media, university, and what have you, and tradition, because tradition is also look at your religious traditions, right? Um, you will find that uh, the 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 person comes to a moral crossroad. Moral meaning, do I uh, exist in this society lawfully? And if you try to do that, you're going to find yourself uh, in you know basically in a society, no matter where you are, that that is unlawful, and you're going to have to compromise a certain morality to deal with even just to deal with them on the most basic aspects or you will say that I have I will not deal with them at all and go find my own planet or my own island somewhere and that's not going to happen so on the on in today modern age uh, you might be left alone for a little while but uh, you will probably be discovered and uh, threatened 
But so we have to lean on the first aspect is as you start gaining knowledge and as you start learning uh, outside of uh, what has been fed to the mushroom people, again, kept in the dark and fed excrement as a mushroom people, you will um, you will find yourself uh, making more decisions on how much compromise do I want, you know, or you can develop what's called, you know, what you see in the media as a criminal mind and take advantage of these morons, you know, the ones that have believing all the mind control and all that and end up being a politician or industry uh, leader or something like that. Are you trying to suggest that the leaders of the world actually despise the people that they're meant to steward over and aren't just punking them? Right, that wouldn't be reasonable to suggest, but I'm sorry to say it is the truth. I'm actually happy to say that it's the truth, not sorry to say. It is, It is, of course, that way. I've always found when you say that sort of thing that Silvio Berlusconi comes to mind because he was always such a comical politician and ultimately you could see he wasn't taking the position seriously, but they kept letting him get back into position. And I, I would say that Trump is the equivalent of that today, but I think he causes a bit more heartache for people mentally. But there's a comical aspect to that, that you have these characters that become political leaders, but they don't have the competence for it. Well, uh, here, here, I'll go back. I'll harken back to Napoleon. He taught, Napoleon taught the, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, he taught the oligarchs or the, the, the wealthy power elite of the world a good lesson. You understand? Uh, that they have to take a, a firm grip and keep clowns in position of leadership. They are the leaders. By the way, when you, uh, not not the clowns that they put in front of you, the presidents and kings and all that, but uh, even in World War II where you had uh, strong people like Stalin, Hitler, and FDR and Churchill supposedly, they were still on the clown category for sure. They had uh, talents in dealing with crowds. But Napoleon Bonaparte taught the oligarchs that uh, to keep a strong hold and keep, you know, the clown aspect in place. Yeah, and you can have a sad and serious clown as well uh, uh, in terms of world leadership. Um, uh, you know what you put in, in public. Uh, so to, to speak of Berlusconi or Trump as just like fifth generation or eighth generation clown. Even Ronald McDonald, right? The McDonald's Corporation knew that you need a clown. At least they were more honest about it. But uh, the, these clowns that you've seen as leaders for the past 200 plus years is an interesting aspect to research uh, how you, you're not going to find the, the, the secret dealings or the secret um, too directly of who runs the world. But you, you'll research how uh, the clownmanship has not changed. Yeah, but... It does seem to me, just to move on to another aspect of, of learning, the, the subject of learning, it seems to me that there are three kinds of people when it comes to learning any subject. There's the person who is able to arrive at insight on his own, by way of his own curiosity and his own efforts. And then there's the person who, though he's capable of arriving at the same understanding as the first guy, that only happens once the subject is explained to him by someone else, so a teacher that helps him grow through proper instruction. And then you have the third kind of person who never arrives at any understanding in the matter, whether by his own efforts or when it's clearly explained to him. So if we presume that that kind of categorization is reasonable, and we know that a person's capacities is significantly formed by their upbringing and their experiences, then I want to ask, at what point can a person no longer move from one category to another between those three? So like when is an unlearned person 
doomed to forever be unlearned or when is a student able to progress to become a master and so on and so forth the trauma aspect is a good one people will always learn through trauma not always and not all people but usually you know there's a, uh, that's the comprehension of the mind of course there's the ideology of the society and the family that they were raised in but then of course you have certain individuals and i would call that uh, the fool aspect you know, ancient writs never said anyone was smarter than anyone else. It, you just had people that had wisdom and then those that didn't, and then you had those that were fools. And I think that's very different than the measurement of IQ and all that. Uh, I think, um, of course, I've experienced people that learn by, by watching adaptive learning and by example, and uh, then there are those that need that and lessons. And then there are those, of course, that even through example or lesson don't learn at all. And I believe that is a on a uh, a private uh, individual basis. You know, the the the, the aspect that uh, the modern quackademics or quackery uh, fake science teaches that it's genetic is not necessarily uh, I don't think holds water. Um, I think it's more of uh, basically from the crib to when you wanted your first ice cream or something. Uh, uh, or able to uh, form form uh, sentences is very important. Uh, the formative years, up until about eight years old, determines much of that. Well, I mean, I can say from my personal experience that I had my life up until the age of 10, you know, mindless consumerism, play video games, go to McDonald's. And then I got shipped off to some other country where the situation was drastically different. And I know that the outcome of who I am as an adult is completely different. So even though I had a certain character that was baked into me from a young age, being shipped off somewhere else completely reformed, you know, the outcome. So perhaps there's something to be said for the fact that I don't I don't want to call it trauma, but you can still beat something into shape as long as it's malleable. Right. And what happens if that trauma is in a negative sense, in a destructive sense, where it causes the person to shut down and up, let's say, until you mentioned the age of 10, let's use that, uh, they would not adapt very well. So let's just just bounce it back to a, from a personal aspect. You're probably not beaten down, and uh, how would you say when you make someone feel bad all the time? Uh, what is that called? Um, well, you know, uh, abuse. Where, where, uh, abuse. Well, no, it, where where it makes the people shut down their senses, uh, and then they and they become hard. Mm -hmm. um, if, if that happens. Uh, up until the formative years or so, they will have a, a hard time adapting unless it's met by other trauma. I mean, again, this is a, the, the how the spirit works. And of course, you know, if we ever do sonics on the spiritual realm, there's answers for all of that. Yes, indeed. That is something altogether different and esoteric to most people. Right, because they're, uh, because most people are comfortable with their lives as long as they're literate enough to use a television remote because b before you know before you continue on any subject you know the person always thinks uh, modern people especially uh, uh, is this something i saw on tv so you said something before about how the ancient writs don't really differentiate between smart or um non-smart people but more of mm -hmm. the, the wise and the fools so I'm just going to use loose, loose language and I'll let you sort of fill in the blanks because I just think that the rhetoric works well for, you know, the secular nature of the theme. What differentiates an intelligent person from an unintelligent person? Or if you want to say a smart person from a stupid person, 
where does that line go? And if you want to say a wise person from a fool, then we'll use that distinction as well. But on one hand, you have this aspect of people that know, and even if they don't know, they can come into knowing or learning, and then you have people who cannot. And I want to sort of explore what the difference is fundamentally between those two. Well, there's the spiritual side. Again, it, it, we've discussed cosmic censorship. You know, if you're, uh, if it's not meant for, you know, why is it not meant is, is a whole other aspect. But if it's not meant for someone uh, to see something, they will not see it. And if it's meant for someone to see something, they will see it. So it's the cosmic censorship, right? The, uh, the those that learn and, and those that don't learn, even though they have the same experiences, again, it's very personal. Uh, 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 formative years have much to do with it. There's the cosmic censorship, the spiritual aspect of it, and uh, filling in, uh, you know, uh, what wisdom is and what a fool is 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 very simple uh, on its face, but complex uh, nonetheless. Because if we look at certain, there's a certain figure that was known to be the wisest in the world in the past, but yet uh, as we come to the end of the, their story, they had done things that were very foolish, right? But we had never seen any fool uh, rise to any prominence where we were given much information about them, and then they had become wise. Uh, so it's a it's an entropic situation. In other words, you can be wise and and be subject to uh, foolishness, but it's if you're a fool, you're pretty much finished. <laughs> That's a bit harsh, but yes. Well, life is harsh. Have you gone uh, camping lately? Have you been out on the ocean lately? Have you gone to a mountaintop lately? Have you gone to the desert lately? Have you been in the city lately? It's harsh wherever you go. Hmm. You've also said in the past that when a person decides to apply themselves to learning something, they have to be able to approach things with a sort of childlike curiosity, which is not the same thing as being childlike or naive or impulsive, but rather you're a mature person who can exhibit the attributes of a child's curiosity. What is the value in that, and what makes it that some people are capable of such curiosity and others aren't? Well, I think the childlike aspect is, is not literal but metaphorical, meaning that you're new and you're not uh, bringing presuppositions and preformed, pre-molded you know, BS uh, that you, you would as an adult, as a functioning, uh, again, a, an esteemed functioning adult in any modern Western society especially, or even Eastern society, has to, is completely formed and molded with with the BS that's put out by the central system, and and by the way, we we've been mentioning a lot of these things in a uh, most people, especially those that are weak-minded, will take it in a negative light. The Greeks too negative. Uh, I would just suggest that it, it yes, this is this is objective speaking. You may not be used to it, but I would suggest that it is a testament to the robustness and durability of the human body and the human spirit. So. Yes, you are succumb. You you if not succumb, succumb meaning you can't you know continue anymore, or re or uh, recover. But if you are uh, constantly um, immersed in a society that is uh, of falsehoods and maladies, um, beware and be aware that uh, it is a testament, a proof on how robust the human spirit and the human body is. Mm. We're living in a world where people have sort of become accustomed, I think, to hearing meaninglessness or meaningless things. And so they live with the sort of expectation that words have little meaning because they've heard it all before. And the example that comes to mind for me is 
when a parent instructs their teenage children, but instead of being mindful of how they communicate, they just use cheap platitudes and cliches like, stay in school or you won't get a job. And meanwhile, the next door teenager who dropped out of school to buy and sell, you know, sneakers or something, he makes 10 grand a month. But the first kid's parents have nothing to say about that. Just stay in school. So even though they're urgently trying to convey something, it's actually the urgency that repels the children because the rhetoric commands no respect. So that leads me to ask, what does it take to get people to listen to good instruction? How do you make somebody listen as opposed to doing things their way? That that's a very difficult question, and I wouldn't be optimistic. And most people will hear but not listen, right? They'll they'll just uh, turn their senses, their ear towards what sounds are being made, but they um, uh, actually lack the comprehension to listen because they don't know what you're saying anyway. Uh, and you mentioned the the parents aspect. Um, here's the shameful aspect about being human: is that it is very well known that when humans are subject to a stressful environment or something, let's say, an impeding dangerous environment, they, their, their reproduction rate tends to drop. Uh, proof of that is that when the woman uh, menstrual cycle stops, right, usually when they're under stress. So if to have a, a, a rightful observation of the conditions of society on Earth, and to see that people are still becoming parents shows you that they're completely deceived and don't know what's going on. They're fully into the the propaganda, you know, the happy, be lucky kind of thing. Um, so, and if it, even if it goes down to food, clothing, and shelter, well, they have poison air, poison water, poison houses, poison food. Not full-on poison uh, that has a that uh, in a mortal sense, but toxic toxic and they're still procreating so you brought up the 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 you know a, a, an alarm went off when i heard parents it's it's shameful to see that there are still parents uh, and and in you know and here's the interesting aspect anyone who was raised in the 60s and 70s or 50s even later will remember striking and boycotting there is none of that anymore because you're finished as a society um uh, you know, there is no uh, consent. There's no, um, uh, in other words, if everyone is consenting all the time, is there any consent? No, they're just mindless idiots or slaves or automatrons. It just means they're totally unaware of, of what's going on. Right. And as far as listening or getting people to listen, I find that that's a skill. Like, let's take the Greek, for example. For whatever reason, you have a quality of making people want to listen to you. It doesn't mean that they're going to take your advice or that they're going to follow your example, but you have a quality that draws somebody in because they discern that what is being said is pertinent. Now, it could be something as seemingly trivial as the tone of your voice that makes that, creates that effect. But there is an art and a skill and an innate talent sometimes in getting people to just shut up and listen because they recognize that something important is being said. And I'm just trying to examine, like, to what extent can that be learned so that you can put that into practice? Oh, that the public speaking or how to communicate is 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 another discussion, and, and I think it's uh, it goes into the realm of personability. There, there's some people, uh, uh, for example, if anyone has ever heard someone that they just can't listen to, and other people can. So again, it's a the, the personal subjective aspect. I think it's very subjective. Uh, I think there's uh, the manipulative art of public speaking as well. You know, uh, yes. Um, 
like we, I just it's very easy to establish that people uh, want to be manipulated uh, simply because uh, uh, institutions and things to manipulate them exist. If they didn't want to be manipulated, those things could not exist because those things exist to accommodate them. So uh, uh, there are ways of uh, uh, understanding, again, based on the culture, how to get through to a person. There, there's a there's psychology on that all the way from. Uh, the sales, the salesmen that are taught on uh, how to deal with the human mind, but the whole thing, again, you're going to anyone has to make a determination. Uh, uh, are are you going? Are you going to do something because you have invested the desire to have an effect, or are you going to do it because it's the right thing to do? You have to say it. So maybe later on. You can't be held accountable for having known something and not sharing it, right? Personally, I say I speak because uh, I don't want to ever be pulled aside later and said, well, you knew these things and didn't say anything. You know, to believe that you will have any effect on anyone or on any any capacity is like someone coming to you with a car that needs to be scrapped and saying, well, I need some touch-up paint. Well, what are you talking about? It needs to go to the garbage heap, right? Let's move on to the concept of teaching and look at the role played by those who have taken it upon themselves to educate others. What does it take to be an effective teacher, particularly having to teach in a world where many people are subject to a sort of defiant spirit of wanting to do things their way? Well, here's the interesting thing, and even from a personal aspect, if I find that I master something, I'm not looking for a student. I'm looking for a teacher. Right. It, it, it harkens back to the concept. Do you teach? Do you give a man fish or do you teach him how to fish? Well, when you're teaching him how to fish in order to, to, for him to be a successful uh, student and you be a successful teacher, he must take on the mindset of the teacher. Right. So in the beginning, of course, when someone is fresh and learning something, they always consider themselves to be a student. But if if you're going to have an equivalent amount of information transferred from one uh, aspect or one being to another, they must be equivalent. In other words, you can't put a liter of water that comes out of a liter container into a half liter container. It also must be a liter. So in essence, every student must also be a teacher or be able to encompass the aspects of, of the teacher. And let me just interject one more thing. When you take the role of a teacher, or in other words, you're imparting something from an authoritative position, the, while that, impart, it, it, that information is being imparted, what should be incrementally involved is the question to who you're imparting to, let's say the student, will you be, will you be able to teach this also? And that's, that's what I call technical access. Like, for example, I'll give an example, weather work. Uh, we've been shown by William Reich, Trevor James Constable, and maybe a few others that the weather can be controlled locally and, and, and let's say, on a larger scale. And it's not this shamanistic um, principle that is, you know, like you hear of ancient legends, certain prophets or shamans can do it, right? Because if you're like that, then when you die, uh, it goes with you. But if you can technically access any, uh, and show someone how to do it, once they learn, there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to show someone else and so on. So that's where I think it's an equivalent factor. You know, like both sides of the equal sign on an equation should, should be equivalent. 
right? I believe that the concept of teacher-student, again, is in, uh, overly enforced by the modern uh, mushroom people system. But I do think that what you're talking about is more of what it takes to be a good student. I think that what you're saying is that in order to be a good student, you have to have the capacity to be a teacher. But what does it take to be a good teacher? Well, can you have a successful download, right, is, is a good student? And, and can you upload something as a good teacher? The, I'm using the digital age technology verbiage uh, uh, there. So what does it take... Let's say, let's just uh, think of computers and all that stuff, even if uh, most people now are more computer literate than they were, let's say, 10 years ago. So giving this metaphor might be good. If you're going to upload something to the Internet, what does it take to be successful? Basically is the question. If you can answer that in whatever capacity, that's what it takes to be a good teacher. And, and if you are in the Internet and you want to download something off of the Internet, what does it take to do that is, is also a metaphor what it takes to be a good student. I certainly hope that those aren't just empty metaphors that are colorful because I, I feel like most people won't get that. Well, they're going to have to think about that. And that's, a, <laughs> you know, that's something that they're not used to doing. Well, we could do a quick rehash. If you're going to upload something to the Internet, it's uh, basically your hardware and the wiring connectivity, right? Connectivity, right? Mm -hmm. It could be wireless, right? And the equipment must be in certain good order. And also you don't want to you want to be able to back it up, right? Because if everything crashes at the moment, you want to be able to retrieve it, right? So that's where notes takes place, you know, memorialization of some sort. You know, when you back up your hard drive, you're memorializing it in essence, aren't you? So, uh, you know, the, that metaphor, I think, is pretty close. Now, I want to bring up something else, too, because in terms of teaching and learning, there's an esoteric side. Have you heard of that urban myth thing called the 100th monkey? where, uh, just to recap, uh, some uh, adventurous scientists went to an island and they showed some monkeys how to wash potatoes that they were eating full of sand. And uh, then they found after a while that all the uh, non-connected islands, all the monkeys, even though they had not been shown this, were doing it um, uh, on their own. So there's like some kind of uh, telepathic superhighway that connects uh, you know, uh, in, you know, things that are ingenious to people, right. You know, telepathically, well, you know, that, uh, that is always used in, in a positive light, right. Uh, that, oh, look, you know, um, you know, uh, good things, you know, ingenious things can be, uh, conveyed, uh, even though there's no contact, but, but no one ever looks at the antithesis of that. What if you dumb down one of the, one, a few of the monkeys on the Island, uh, then does it, does that dumbing down, you know, if you turn them on, you know, on a moron in, uh, level in the monkey society, would that spread? Why is it always that the ingenious side spreads and not the uh, not the dumbing down or the more, the, you know, the idiocy spreading? And you notice that's never been considered. So when I think of the hundredth monkey, my mind doesn't go necessarily to the subjective aspect. Look how wonderful that is. I say, oh, that could be dangerous because if you can make them smarter by just affecting a few, you can make them dumber also by just affecting a few. And I think that holds more true in modern society than ever. Mm. I think one of the responsibilities of a teacher is to help bring erroneous beliefs to a conclusion so that people can dispel them. So a teacher should highlight and explain what's wrong with the fallacy and not just scorn it the way that a lot of adults moralistically do. Like, oh, you know, this is bad, don't do this, or only bad people do that, which is, which is kind of infantile. But sometimes, even when you explain something at the level of a fifth grader, people don't get it, or they hear you, but then they act like they don't hear you so that they can continue living their regular lives. So where would you say that the line goes between making 
a solid explanation to edify somebody and sort of throwing pearl after swine to people who can't discern the value of it anyway? Uh, well, the the answer to that is uh, you don't want to do things by chance, right? First of all. Second of all, uh, you're going to have to learn to employ a level of efficiency, right? Uh, without going into uh, chance too much because you can't start uh, discussing it with everyone uh, all the time, let's say. You know, uh, you're, you're going to run out of time and effort. And or you will become embittered because uh, you uh, most people have the idea that they can convey things to the majority of the people and maybe a few won't get it. But I, I suggest it's the other way around. There are some people uh, in history that have been trying to convey uh, wonderful things uh, to the majority and didn't even have a small majority react. You know, the, in other words, where you can put out information to millions of people and like one or two will get it. Right. So uh, this is just the you know, you have to make an objective determination. Where are you? When on when are, are you and who are you? Right. This is planet Earth. What do you know about planet Earth? Again, not, not to take it out into the fantasy aspect of science fiction, but uh, I like the concept of uh, the various societies provided by like the Roddenberry series of Star Trek. You know, it seems like there's almost an infinite number of societies you can run into. And um, how do you classify them? Well, how would you classify being on Earth at this time? You know, that is the most objective way to do it. And uh, again, just to go back to what I said before, the good news is it's a planet full of morons. That is the reality of it. It doesn't sound good. I'm not expecting anyone to agree and say, I like what he just said. But that's the reality of it. Again, uh you, you've got to hear something I'll lean on. I'll lean on this from a secular point of view, secular point of view. You know, you could look at all the Illuminati conspiracies or whatever on the Internet. By the way, any conspiratorial secretive stuff you see on the Internet that you think is bad, the reality is 10 times worse. So don't feel bad by what you're reading because it's really much worse. OK, they want to reduce the, the plan as, you know, like they put it, like I mentioned earlier, 1984 and Brave New World was a commissioned work, actually. Uh, it's pretty clearly known, well known that the uh, secular agenda, political, scientific, judicial, whatever uh, religious agenda is to reduce the Earth's population down to less than 10 percent of the existing one right now. OK, the good news is that is clearly supported by all of your ancient writs whether you're looking at, um, at all of your major religions are supposed to have a book attached to them, which none of them know anything in those books anyway. But if you look at the ancient writs, they also support that. So we know one thing is going to happen for sure. The majority of what you see as society now as it is will not exist in the future. Right. And I'm not, it's not a week from now or a month from now or a year from now. And I've discussed the specifics on that. So you always have to keep that in mind. Is it a happy-go-lucky, let's go, let's go, you know, all learn something new and uh, hold hands in a circle and sing Kubaya? No, because it's not going to be very long-lasting. There are a few things that are going to be longer-lasting, but unfortunately, most people don't know what those things are. So there's no sense in bringing them up. But the aspect of um, uh, this fact, right, does not mean you should be worried or de in desperation about it. It should mean that you're bold, that you're efficient. Efficient meaning that when you hear about doom and gloom in, in next week or next month, ignore it because it's not going to happen as it's been shown in the past. 
And the major things that will cause social change that will quote unquote enlightened and put people in a dark state and, and since the subject is education will not be um, uh, uh, shown prior. They're always gonna be coming on the scene as a surprise. So what does that mean? Well, be prepared for surprises. You know, there, there's something called intuition, intuitive or non-intuitive would be the opposite. Your counterintuitive would be the opposite. Like once you become objective, looking at what's put out in the world as science, medicine, judicial, religion, it becomes completely counterintuitive. And they tell you what it really is when you question, you know, the authorities, that it's nonsense. They do tell you it's nonsense, right? It personally, but on a grand level, they tell you it's, you know, it's a steadfast reality. Hmm. Let's um, keep it going with the teaching aspect of things. You had um, once said to me that when a person wants to master a certain subject, they have two options. Essentially, they can either try to reinvent the wheel by spending X amount of years to learn something that other people already know and has already been demonstrated, or they can just find some learned person to study under who can communicate to them in some short period of time what it would have taken them years to learn. And then because you pointed that out to me, I put a certain quote on greekspeak.com in the quote rotator, which says, where have all the masters gone? So when you read about ancient civilizations, whether it's classical Greece or even ancient Persia, there's always an emphasis on a, a sort of philosophical and sometimes priestly class of learned men who essentially can put their money where their mouth is when crunch time comes. So not, you know, academia who bloviate about nonsense, but you, you know, for example, you have the Stoics or you have the Magi or you have the Pythagoreans who attracted a following because they had leaders who knew enough of a certain subject to showcase high-level performance in it, right, in such a way that, you know, the social or political landscape could change when they took action. What has happened to that kind of mastery um, that, you know, makes regular people want to go out and follow people like that. I don't see a lot of masters at work in that sort of way anymore. Well, actually, it does exist, the master clownmanship. If you look at your uh, religious leaders, political leaders, judicial leaders, legal leaders, medical leaders, military leaders, that's all clownmanship. They're clowns. They're there to entertain and have uh, a certain amount of, uh, they don't have a personal uh, charisma to do it on their own, they need the entire uh, system to back them up, the education system, the media, and all the institutions in place. That, uh, so in essence, uh, that is what's left of the mastery now. Um, it, so in a sense, are they really masters? No, because they need the, the impulsive systems around them. So in a sense, that's the only way that the masses interact with mastership is the master deceivers, the master clowns, whatever. You know, even when you... Um, Go look at all the institutions today. Let's say you look at the medical institutions, universities, or the labs. They're just, it's clownmanship. There's nothing there. Uh, the scientists, the astrophysicists, they're clowns. Uh, the religious, I mean, the, all your religious leaders are clowns, down to the, the local clergy. So they have mastered that, the art of deception, the art of uh, uh, controlling the group, um, uh, and and it's mastered in a way where you they've oversimplified and used uh, people's feelings. Uh, you know, when most people say they think, they they don't know what that is. They actually mean what they feel. They don't know what thinking is. So the master of manipulation of the feelings of the people, because if you were to figure out uh, objectively how many people are left on the planet that can think, you can probably count them on just a few hands. 
There are very few people. Just if I would say without getting myself in trouble later, maybe a few thousand people on the entire planet, that's pretty accurate. Most people are uh, by feeling. So the only mastership that you see overtly is controlling the feelings and emotions of people. Right. Um, that now the the true mastership where you start to have, let's say, uh, the development of, uh, you know, technical development of how the human body works, the study of the ancient writs, um, what they call the sciences and things to develop society. They're, they're all underground and they're working on their own in very, very small groups or factions. Very, and to say that they're complete thinkers is also a misnomer. They've, they, most of these masters that are left have also been befallen by, the, um, by the, the lack of virtue and morality that you see in society today. I can give you many examples of people that I think are a master in one particular field, but they're not really masters. You know, because they'll, you'll, you'll, uh, you know, I'll look at them. I say, wow, they're really well endowed in this particular field. But then they talk about, oh, how there's a national debt, and they don't know that there's no money. They haven't figured that out yet, right? So, so the the true mastership, I think they're done. I have not encountered any uh, that I can say. I think they're all finished. And if there are the, out there, I'm sure there might be very few. I have not encountered any. Oh, well, that's a shame. I was hoping you could point me to some masters, but. Oh, well, it's not the age of that, uh, that you have to understand where you are. It's earth and, um, the, the, the latent powers uh, that, that exists find anyone with true mastership as being their true enemy. Right. Hmm. So I once, um, read a quote that was attributed to Socrates, but I can't confirm where it actually came from in the internet says Socrates, but anyway, Mankind is made up of two kinds of people, wise people who know that they're fools and fools who think that they're wise. And I think that that's some food for thought, and it ties quite well into the one of the key morals of the story of Socrates, which is that people think that they know, but they don't know, and that makes them fools, but they don't know that they're fools, and so they remain blinded by their own folly. So my question is, is there a way for an enlightened person to show a fool that he's a fool? And if so... What is the most effective way to do that as somebody that's trying to teach that? All right. Well, uh, considering the uh, the fool aspect, um, uh, it's a matter of efficiency. Uh, let's say Mark Twain said that it's easier to fool someone than to convince them that they've been fooled. Okay. So the in other words, it's more efficient to to condone. Well, let's say to support foolishness and keep people foolish. It's far more far less energy than to get them out of that foolery for foolishness. So if, if you're going to, uh, let's say, be efficient with your time and your energy, you would avoid the entire premise. It doesn't mean that a fool can't pr provide something that is necessary for food, clothing, and shelter, but don't go deep into their folly. No, we're not suggesting that you would <laughs> go deep into their folly, but... Essentially, what you're saying is that there is no hope for the fool. The fool is to be scorned and rebuked and really nothing else is what you're saying. Uh, if you're if you're going to operate in high efficiency, absolutely. There is no uh, there to be avoided. It's even in, in ancient writs. But if you don't mind uh, investing a tremendous amount of time for very little return, then go for it. Deal with them. Attorneys are a great uh, example. 
anyone that has legal issues, if you want to go deal with attorneys, uh, yeah, that's a fool on both sides, right? You're going to fools. You know, most uh, there's a small group of attorneys that know what's going on, that it's completely there to, you know, uh, it's it, it, even there's even smaller group of attorneys that know that they represent the evil forces and the the lower you know greater group says you know they're there to enrich themselves and control society and then the rest of the 90 percent are just fools they actually think they're doing the right thing and they don't have enough sense to see that they never were educated in law in the first place that's a good example doctors are another one same percentage the the upper upper tier of doctors are Spirit, Satanists, basically, spiritually, they know that they represent the dark forces of the universe. And then the ones below that are, know that they're doing it to enrich themselves. Then the 90% the group doesn't know anything. That don't, you just follow directions and whatever they're told to do. So again, you deal with them, you're dealing, that's a, 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 just a, a wholesale, objective way to show how that's just foolishness. So what do you do? Well, you better learn law and you better learn how to how the human body works, right? Because you're not going to get anything from those morons or fools, you know, attorneys and doctors. Let's wrap up the stream with this. There's a sense, I think, that everything that you could ever want to know about most subjects has already been said over the past two to three thousand years. The Greek has touched on that quite a bit, whether you have to go dig up library archives or study ancient history or travel to certain sites in foreign countries to uncover specific information, that's on you, but the relevant information exists. However, most people don't have the bandwidth or the wherewithal to uncover everything about everything, and they don't have a master to teach them the basics of what's in front of them even. So when your average person comes to the realization that he has to redirect his focus from mindless consumerism to something more edifying, what would the Greeks say that he should focus on to teach himself these things. Oh wow! Uh, well, on a personal level, basically, uh, you're going to have to uh, learn what morality and law is, and uh, that's that's basically it. And uh, try to try to uh, follow a lawful life. What's the right thing to do for humans on the earth at this time to do? And uh, and, and that doesn't come from a legal society or your political body, uh, and and or your preacher by the way, or imam or rabbi. Talk about more clowns. Um, so you're going to find out uh, things when you ask questions about what is moral and what is lawful. You'll find out that no one around you knows anything about those things. So finding out that no one around you knows anything about anything is a start. That's actually not a bad answer. I can see that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we're going to have to um, wrap up. I think a lot of things have been said. Okay. Um, is there anything else you want to touch on, Greek, before we conclude? Uh, not, not at the moment. I think we'll uh, have to continue this mindset uh, a little bit further as the future goes on. Okay? Yeah. Well, thank you to everybody who tuned into this episode. It's been enjoyable once again, and I hope that we'll be doing it sometime soon. So thanks again for listening.